For more information on Ancient Dragon Zen Gate, please visit our website at www.ancientdragon.org. Our teachings are offered to the community through the generosity of our supporters. To make a donation online, please visit our website. in person at Ebenezer Lutheran Church in Arzendo here. I don't know if anyone noticed that kind of a cool breeze arose during Zazen uh, in otherwise somewhat warm Zendo. And greetings to all bodhisattvas in the cloud. Welcome. So I am Bogatsu. Uh, Zen priest here at Ancient Dragon. Um, last week, the church needed our space, so we had to temporarily pack up our physical Zendo and move to uh, alternate location, pop-up Zendo, and then back into the cloud exclusively, and now we're back on the ground and in the so we're practicing not abiding while abiding. Yesterday, I completed a four-week little intensive study practice period on the Diamond Sutra, the Vajra Tadaka. Prajna Paramita Sutra, led by San Francisco Zen Center's Green Gulch Farm Abbess, Sue Schrader, uh, my Dharma aunt, Tegan's Dharma sister, so it's kind of all in the family. And um, although that study Dharma event has, practice event has ended, uh, I, I feel like I'm going to be coursing in the Diamond Sutra for, you know, maybe three or four, six months, no, year or so, who knows. So we'll talk about that again today, just in case it's a little warning, trigger alert, Diamond Sutra. <laughs> um, uh, so that we dive into this sutra a little more, do a trust fall into this net of Indra together. So I think almost all of you were here last time I spoke about this sutra, but I'll just do a, a quick recap and then maybe we'll explore a little more of the Dharma. Paramita Sutra. This teaching that cuts through delusion like a thunderbolt or a sword. recently read that Florida was the place, the state in the country that has the most thunder strikes. So be careful. Uh, so as many of you know, the Diamond Cutter Sutra is part of this basket, this little group of teachings known as the Great Wisdom Teachings or the Prajna Paramitra literature, this boundless, boundless wisdom literature. Um, and the Diamond Sutra is one little 
facet of that. But it's very important to us in Zen. You know, we chant the sibling, sibling the, the heart sutras, is a kind of the sibling, <laughs> one of Prajna Paramita, the great mother goddess of wisdom in our Buddhist pantheon. Uh, this is one of the babies. And the Heart Sutras is, we just chant it every day, pretty much probably 24-7 around the world uh, in Zen Buddhist and other Buddhist practice places. And probably by practitioners alone in their home. And sometimes people chant the Diamond Sutra as well, which we'll do as part of our service today. Um, but the... The Prajnaparamita literature is pretty old, you know, let's say earliest writings, maybe a few 400 years or so after Buddha's death, but it kind of went viral on the Silk Route uh, from India all the way up desert areas in China, uh, which is kind of, kind of amazing. But really, uh, and the Diamond Sutra in particular went viral. Um, and although this is a later version of it, we actually have this copy that lies in the British Museum of the Diamond Sutra from 868, found in a cave, purloined by uh, <laughs> the usual suspects, uh, privileged white male. Um, but preserved for us. So uh, you can check out the website of the British Museum and see some beautiful images. Um, there are two main themes of the major themes, I'd say, of the Diamond Sutra. Number one is the teaching of emptiness, shunyata, uh, which is the basis for ultimate wisdom, I'd say, base teaching this extra special wisdom known as Prajnaparamita. And then the second is uh, teaching about the training program for bodhisattvas, for the careers of bodhisattvas. So these are the concerns of almost all the Prajnaparamita literature and the Diamond Sutra in particular. And this training program that's emphasized in this Diamond Sutra even though it's rather subtle in some ways, is this cultivation or refinement of the paramitas, you know, generosity, patience, meditation, precepts, energy, those things. So this is just a little, little context, which probably many of you are very familiar with. Huygens wrote a, written a great book on these Parmita practices, what is it, Faces of Compassion? Is that the name of it? Yeah. And Rebbe Anderson has, so, you know, you can Google Parmitas and enjoy coursing in them. Uh, but some ways, traditional ways to practice, which I've been creating space in my life to do for the past month, is listening to the sutra, so listening to someone read it, chanting it, reading it yourself, copying it by hand, studying it, practicing day in and day out. Practicing this diamond teaching 
the supreme wisdom. This way of knowing is boundless and encourages a liberated wisdom. So this is a wisdom that cuts through fixed ideas of things and notions of separation or illusions of duality. So, you know, in some ways we're, <laughs> we're living completely in illusion all the time. But enlightenment is knowing that and um, figuring out how to meet this. So the sutra is challenging sometimes. Uh, you know, you find resistance to it. Uh, many people do. I certainly have. Um, and it polishes this polishes our hearts and our minds. And, you know, I'm not sure what is revealed once that polishing, in that polishing process, or what happens to the dust. But let's just provisionally say maybe you get a little bit of a way to live in a world that honors all existence. That's free. So this is this realization of wholeness is sometimes called emptiness teachings, which I think, you know, people sometimes term this as voidness, you know, be careful with that. This emptiness is like completely full. Um, once we let go of this view of I, me, mine, me, I, um, So, concepts, of course, conventional life, language and ideas, you know, these appear to be necessary for humans. And, you know, even birds maybe have their own language or caterpillars and trees, uh, their way of dealing with the world. Um, but I think we've all have a glimpse of or are witnessing or feeling uh, the consequence the dangerous consequences of being stuck in concepts and believing my ideas uh, and reinforcing those personal interpretations of every on everything that we experience, that we touch, that we see, that we feel, that we smell, that we think. So language and conventions help us, but they have a danger element. You know, the unchecked expansion of the grasping self well, turns into maybe a survivalist nightmare. We need more and more and more and spinning into fear, fear of death and loss. And then hoarding, hoarding resources, you know, then let's build, uh, you know, a house with a fence and guns and a safe room, panic room, you know, we just build more and more. You know, I read recently that somebody was caught in this kind of fear cycle and built a very expensive house and a safe room. And somebody sadly, very tragically broke in and killed his daughter. So all that protection didn't save him. And actually, some kind of person 
who was also stricken with panic, committed this crime because he wanted to take over this person's safe house because he'd read about the safe house and he wanted to be safe. So this is just, you know, that may seem like an extreme example, but think about the internal safe houses we might be cooking up. Um, so to save us <laughs> from this hell, uh, this stuckness and greed and hatred and fear and intoxication. Uh, we have these wonderful Prajna Paramita Sutras to teach us how to live in the world of scissors and cars and nuclear weapons and trees and babies with a shift in perspective. I call this the diamond shift. So we widen our personal perspectives beyond these ideas of separation and delusion. Me and you, good and bad, more or less, right or wrong, winners and losers, that kind of dividing, 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 dividing. Um, so then we have to do this like trust fall <laughs> into the entire universe, you know, and open to embrace a really spacious, perspective that honors the inconceivable, the inconceivable diversity. So in each particular thing, the diversity, even in our bodies, you know, we have all these organisms living in our bodies with all these little machines doing all this work beyond our consciousness or just at the edge of it, maybe. So this inconceivable diversity is also part of the wholeness in our lives. So I think it's amazing. I've really been appreciating how the Diamond Sutra and the Prussian Paramita teachings permeate our Zen practice. So they're not just old stuff, but they're fresh and they're very Zen, you know, even in how we gasho. Not two, not one. How we move in our meditation spaces, whether you're at home or here at the Visa. These are, you know, sutra. all things are marked by emptiness. We offer our meals saying, you know, um, realizing the emptiness of the three wheels, giver, receiver, and gift. So this wholeness is, is permeating. These are teachings from the Diamond Sutra and the Heart Sutra. But I'll say a little bit about the actual sutra itself. <laughs> it's just a little preamble. Oh. So this is basically a dialogue between Buddha and his student, some people say disciple or Dharma friend, Sabuti. And the Buddha is returning from breakfast after begging for breakfast, receiving breakfast from the Mahasanga in the town of Shravasti. And Buddha arranges a seat, just like we're doing. We arrange our seats and sit down with an assembly. And then fully present, assuming the internal and external bodily posture, deportment of zazen, heart and mind. 
but he graciously receives a question, a sincere question from this excellent student, Sibutin. The student who, by the way, which I keep saying, but I think it's really important, uh, is considered the most adept in emptiness teachings, in the Shunyata teachings, was first awakened by contemplating metta, loving kindness. So I think, in, and this is true even in some of the Chinese literature on meditation, it's, it's encouraged to practice metta meditations or these Brahma Viparas, to practice this, you know, kind of a little preamble maybe, or as part of your strict zazen meditation. So this opens our heart too. So there's always compassion is implied, but maybe it's not obvious um, in some of these more kind of philosophical sutras. But you could see that was probably a given. So uh, Subhuti asked the question, and the rest of the sutra is pretty much a riff on the answer. It's a riff on this question. Uh, and says to Buddha, if a noble son or daughter should set forth on the Bodhisattva path, how should they stand? How should they walk? And how should they control their thoughts? I would maybe say, how do we relate to our thoughts? Um, and Buddha, like, super happy to receive this question. <laughs> and says, you know, first thing you want to do, so this question is really like, how do I, what, how do I enroll in the Bodhisattva training program? Like, what's the program? Help me with this. So the first, you know, process of enrollment, the application starts with vow. This vow to commit yourself to uh, help all beings, free all beings. This kind of inconceivable vow. So then you commit to the vow, but then Buddha actually in the first part of this sutra says, okay, once you've committed to saving all beings, then you have to let go of any concept of a separate being to be helped. <laughs> so give up the idea that there are any beings in the first place. And then once you have that established, or once you get that fully, then you can use the term, conventional term being, and relate to beings free from grasping, and then you might be able to be helpful. I don't know, but you might have had an experience like this where, like, I really want to be helpful. <laughs> and somebody comes and they talk to you and they're telling you real problems in their life, and you're like spewing out solutions. Maybe you can do this. Maybe you can fix that. What about that? And the person is like, no, no, no. Because <laughs> we have some ideas we impose on other people. And it takes a long time to settle into this not knowing, which is emptiness, you could say. But anyway, that's just first part. I'm going to move along a little. Uh, in the Diamond Sutra, I read section four, which um, is kind of a pointer to how to engage in Bodhisattva practices, these supreme practices called the Paramitas of Generosity. 
patients, Shanti Paramita, Ethical Conduct, Suma Paramita, Varya Paramita, Great Energy, Donna Paramita, Meditation, and of course, the Great Rajya Paramita, Wisdom. From Buddha's dining perspective. So, as I mentioned before, I'm going to read, but before I read the sutra itself, I just want to do a little invocation in honor of the great mother of wisdom, mother of all Buddhas, Prajnaparamita. Om Namo Bhagavatyai Arya Prajnaparamitai Homage to the perfection of wisdom, the lovely, the holy. So section four, Buddha continues teaching, teaching us, teaching Sabuti, was kind of a stand-in for all beings. Moreover, Sabuti, bodhisattvas who give a gift, that is, bodhisattvas who practice generosity, or generosity, bodhisattvas who give a gift should not be supported by a thing, nor should they be supported anywhere. When they give gifts, they should not be supported by sight objects, nor by sounds, smells, tastes, touchables, or objects of mind. For Subhuti, bodhisattvas, great beings, mahasattvas, says, should give gifts in such a way that they're not supported by the notion of a sign. And why? Because the heap of merit of that Bodhi being who unsupported gives a gift is not easy to measure. What do you think, Sabuti? Is the extent of space in the East easy to measure? Sabuti replied, No, indeed, O Lord, that's Buddha. <laughs> in a Christian place, so offended. But, um, no, indeed, O Lord. Then the Lord Buddha asked, In like manner, is it easy to measure the extent of space in the southwest or north, downwards, upwards, in the intermediate directions, in all the ten directions, all around? Subhuti replied, No, indeed, Lord. It's not easy to measure space. In parentheses, space is boundless. My comment. Uh, and then the Lord said, even so, the heap of merit of that Bodhi being who unsupported gives a gift is not easy to measure. That is why, Sabuti, those who have set out in the Bodhisattva vehicle, the Bodhisattva Yana, should give gifts without being supported by the notion of a sign. So this is spacious giving. I'm going to read another translation, which may read a little easier to our modern American ears. This is, again, the same section. Furthermore, Sabuti, in the practice of generosity, a bodhisattva should be unsupported, that is, unattached. He or she should practice generosity without regard to sight, sound, touch, flavor, smell, 
or any thought that arises in it. Sabuti, thus should a bodhisattva practice generosity without being supported by any notion of a sign. When a bodhisattva practices generosity without being supported by any notion of a sign, his or her merit will be beyond conception. The merit of a bodhisattva who practices generosity without cherishing any notion of a sign is beyond measure like space. Vast as space is benefit of knowing deeply that language and concepts, this is my <laughs> editorialism, uh, deeply knowing that our language and concepts are pointing at the moon, never touch it, never reach it. This is all of those images pointing at the moon, not reaching the vastness, boundless that you read in the Zen, vast Zen literature, this volcano of words, so this is Zen literature. Um, oh, has some foundation in this Diamond Sutra and related Prashaparamita teachings. I'll just say a little bit about these terms, unsupported, without being supported, without cherishing a notion of a sign. You know, this can be understood as variations of non-attachment or non-grasping or letting go of conceptual thought. Now, there's really um, a wonderful description by Kanza of this term unsupported. And maybe I'll just read a tiny bit, because this description is about a page long of how to parse this, this uh, term, if I can find it all fast. So I'll just say, Hans has translated this as a number of ways as follows. A. There's 13 things after A, but it says, as applied to relations between two objects, forms, or bodies. And here's the way it's been translated and understood. Not relying on anything, not depending on anything, not standing about anywhere, not established anywhere, not resting on anything, not leaning on anything, not holding on to anything, not abiding in anything, or not intent on abiding anywhere, not attached to anything, not clinging. Well, I guess I can't help myself from reading through this, sorry. Uh, that was A. B, this unsupported, as applied to emotional experience. Not settling down anywhere, not making oneself home anywhere, not seeking a secure base anywhere, not seeking refuge or security anywhere, not rejoicing in anything. And then C, uh, applied to social relationships, not expecting any help from anything, not even the Dharma, not trusting in anything except Prajnaparamita. So this is that trust ball. Uh, and not believing blindly in anything. So, I mean, that's a pretty, pretty nice list of how to metabolize 
these emptiness teachings and not being attached or supported. Um, I will read one other little snippet from chapter 10, C, in Ponce's translation, which is um, associated with our sixth ancestor, Wenong's awakening. So this section reads, So Sabuti, all bodhisattvas should develop a clear, lucid mind that does not depend on sight, sound, touch, flavor, smell, or any thought that arises in it. A bodhisattva should develop a mind that functions freely, without depending on anything or any place. This is how all of the paramitas are practiced, bodhisattvas. That's my Ocaranism. But these are how all they are, not depending on anything, a mind that functions freely. You know, this is everywhere in Zen literature, looking for this mind that goes beyond. Um, and in this little section, in that section four that I read, it focused on this paramita of generosity. And it's easy to kind of miss that. But that was shorthand for including all of the paramitas. Um, this is pretty heavy teaching, but there is a little bit of levity in this teaching. So maybe the um, techno could help me display the gift, the gift cartridge. <laughs> this is actually uh, a cartoon, a Buddhist cartoon. Somebody gave me this card as a um, with my birthday present. <laughs> a good friend of mine who's not a Buddhist, um, and. <laughs> It's really great. You can kind of see this monk who's getting a, a gift and said, oh, an empty box. Now, nothing, just what I wanted. But that's, that's pretty good. So we have a little bit of desire. But even in my case, my friend actually gave me a really beautiful, tiny little gift. That gift was an ancient coin from, um, I don't know, maybe like Afghanistan region. It's an ancient coin. I think David Ray seen this coin. And it was Buddhist and Greek <laughs> uh, mix. So that was a little gift, but I was really thrilled with that. But uh, no. How many times have we received a gift or given a gift and had a problem with it? I wanted the right gift. That person clearly doesn't love me because they got my color wrong. They got me green instead of purple or blue instead of black or, you know, whatever. Or, you know, Give a gift because you want something. But to really, the art of giving a gift, and this is true with, with every all these practices, patience. So if you're patient with something because you think, if I just wait long enough, it's going to get better. That's a grasping mind, right? You practice the precepts because you want to be a good person. Um, so here's another little cartoon. This is about 
<laughs> what the gift that, that keeps on giving in Buddhism. So um, let's see. I think I have this. Buddhism, the religion that promises nothing and then delivers. Mm -hmm. You know, so I don't know. The longer I practice, I haven't been practicing that long, many people have been practicing a lot longer than I have, but uh, the less I get. So it's, um, you know, this is our, our practice of sunyata but there's a delight in it like i laugh because you know what the consequences of trying to squeeze out existence to get something so this is what this diamond cutter is doing it's polishing polishing our practices of generosity of patience of precepts of energy meditation and wisdom and, you know, I think our Sangha has been doing a really good job of practicing with this kind of diamond cutter, even if we haven't really been conscious of it, allowing the diamond cutter to do its work. Another theme, actually, is not abiding, or a, let's say a sidebar implication of the Diamond Sutra is not abiding, the mind that doesn't rest, fix itself anywhere. And I think our Sangha has been doing a really good job with this non-abiding. You know, for over two years, we've had the challenge of having no fixed abode for our Sangha. And we've had to function freely. We've had to learn how to be together in the cloud. So maybe, um, Techno, Dylan, if you could remove our screen share. Enjoyed that. Um, You know, you might have had noticed a tendency to say, well, this is what a t real temple should be like, and that Ebenezer space isn't that. Or, you know, well, our sangha isn't really a sangha if it's not practicing physically together. So then the cloud, you know, people or the cloud people are like, well, I'm not, am I not really an ancient dragon because I'm not really Ebenezer Zendo? So we're, so a lot of this comfort zone around practice is being, uh, turned around a little bit and giving us uh, opportunity to employ, to deploy the diamond cutter, polishing our body lines. Um, this soothes, soothes this proliferating uh, Self-involved thinking, soothes fear. I want this, I want that. That doesn't mean that we don't take care of the space. You know, this morning, so last week we had to pack everything up and clear out our temple space here at Ebenezer so another group could use the space. So to put everything away, it's a little bit of a hassle maybe. But this morning, I thought I came here early, but already the Eno and Doans had created this space and put it together just beautifully as if we had never left. And we're figuring out how to work together. 
platform to do this and not be distracted by our ideas, you know, um, and soothe, like, did I get this right? Did I get this wrong? We're just, just creating. You know, this past Thursday, July 28th, was the 19th anniversary of the first meeting, the birth of our Sangha. 19 years. And of this dragon Buddha field arising. I don't know if anyone was there at the first meeting. I think so. I think just me. <laughs> OG dragon. <laughs> um, but some people in our sangha were there and it was in our dharma brothers who's now doing his own thing living room in lincoln park and so tygen guided us from afar he was just like now <laughs> he was living in california uh, for some years and we would meet in a living room and he'd come out every now and again and help us and we consult about teaching. But just like this morning, every single day, we had to set up cushions and a zendo every time we met. Then we'd have to store them away after every meeting. And just like those early days, we carefully arranged the cushions and the altar and offered incense. We even brought tea and snacks. Imagine that. They haven't managed that yet here at Ebenezer. Some of you might remember that. I think maybe Nathan and Yozan were around for that. Anyone else? So we did this when we rented. So we moved from that living room to another church called the Senecal, which I think is now worn down, raised. Um, but we had to, you know, put a lot of effort into like bringing like a like the Tibetan sand tray. You know, they meticulously make this beautiful uh, spiritual sand tray image, and then they throw it in the ocean, give it up. This is rooted in these diamond teachings, uh, and so we did all these things. We do all these things, and then we put everything away and leave no trace as if we never existed. <laughs> we care for the spaces that we're in. We're enjoying the birds outside. I don't know if you can hear them. The traffic. Last Sunday, um, we met in my living room. I never thought, like, you know, really, I don't did not really think I wanted a Zendo in my living room. But somehow it appeared so that we could have a goodbye ceremony, a farewell ceremony for our dear Sangha members, Michael and Katie. And so in that living room, everyone here, many of you, almost all of you, not all of you though, but many of you were, were at that uh, sitting and Douglas gave the Dharma talk and the Eno and Doans cared for this practice space and we held this ceremony and said farewell uh, without too much attachment and with warm hearts to Katie and Michael. We enjoyed tea together. So this is, we're, we're, we're giving a flexible client, responsive sangha, um, which 
which is pretty awesome. It would be great if we had our own, you know, physical temple space that we think was permanent. But even then, even then, temples fall into ruin and forgotten. And still we practice. We respond to circumstances and we help each other, not to other. Just to practice wholeheartedly. And this is how we bring forth Prajna, Paramita, Bodhisattvas, together. The Diamond Sutra is medicine, a medicinal implement, you could say, to open up, open up our hearts and minds so we can soften this conventional thinking and not throw it away. Uh, once, we, once we feel it, once we understand it, uh, once we understand that uh, we're everything we think we're not, Everything we think is, is something else in some ways. Once we give up cherishing a notion of a sign, uh, then we just return to our lives and take care of our sendos and our families and our world. Um, you know, here's an example of how to play with this a little. Like, take a walk in your neighborhood. And every time a word comes up for something you're seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, just, just say no, or moo, or nine, or yet. But just, just don't say anything else. But every time you see that popping up, that's a bird, that's a tree, that's Jan, that's Joshin. Every time, just let it go. And once you <laughs> do that, to see a tree as a tree, and a tree is everything not a tree, then you can see a tree and discover a tree again. <laughs> Same with our Zendo. Uh, that is my wish for the world. And, you know, there's a saying in Dogen who's quoting somebody that says, the entire universe is the true body of the self. This is diamond teaching. Then, then we can practice. And even though our benefit to the world, our merit of practice can't be seen or grasped, we are still practicing with all of our great ancestors, and activating this mind that doesn't dwell on anything in a grasping way. It might dwell lightly for a second, like a butterfly on a bush. I mean, wouldn't you like to live that way? So let's continue our practice together, Bodhisattvas. I've said plenty, more than enough. And please bring forth your responses and
So I think everybody knows the, the routine here, but folks in the, on, in the, the clouds, if you want to raise your hand or, oh, Deborah, there you go. Yeah, raise the, the hand function. Go ahead, Deborah. So I just wanted to thank you so much for your very wonderful Dharma talk today. Um, and I just wanted to say, because I, I, I'm only listening mainly. That sound. We're arranging our technology so that we can communicate with each other. It's conventional world. Deborah, can you say something? Hello, can you hear me? Okay. So I just wanted to thank you again for this wonderful Dharma talk. It was very um, piercing for me. And I, I just wanted to share because I am listening, I had my video off. There was a, a little bird singing while you were where you were teaching um, all the during the teaching. Maybe he's still singing while you're all sitting. So I found that very wonderful. It was such a, a you know gift to hear the lovely bird. And I just wanted to say that um, I am still approaching the Diamond Sutra. And I do find it to be a very piercing. I don't feel it's polishing. I feel it's piercing. So I just wanted to say that and leave it there. Thank you. More about the piercing. Okay. So maybe Deborah, you could tell me a little more about the piercing. Yeah, I mean it's very physical. The words I'm writing it out, which mm-hmm. is really helping me to connect to it more, and I'm going very slowly. Um, and I'm the reason I'm doing that is I'm not trying to literally intellectually connect with the words, and I, I just been it's very it's a very I'm just trusting kind of this unknown approach to I'm using. That's, I guess what I'm saying. And I, I just find, I feel almost like my mind is sort of uh, not forming the words. It, I'm understanding it in a different way. Mm-hmm. I think I'll just say that, say that much about it. Maybe permeating the body. Yeah. Maybe on a cellular level. Yeah. yeah. Wonderful. Thank it's, you. It's a little disconcerting though. Sometimes these teachings, they can make you feel a little nauseous. <laughs> I don't know. And Laurel, did you know what that bird was? Yes, it was a cardinal. A cardinal. So we've identified our friend, the cardinal. So was the bird speaking or was I speaking, right? Okay. Thank you, Deborah, very much. Paola. How is the Diamond Sutra different than other emptiness? It's just another facet of the same whole. It has its own little flavor and taste and its own medicinal qualities. So, I, I mean, you know, you could go in and get very philosophical and talk about emptiness teachings prior to the Mahayana and the advent of the Prajnaparamita text, but I really don't know anything about that. Um, but I think that the way we use or the way we understand and the way the, the Diamond Sutra and the Prajnaparamita Sutras have influenced us in Zen is profound and far-reaching. And that I don't see them as very different from each other. Some are a little older. 
Some are more pithy, like the diamond and heart sutras. Some are like really expansive. Like I especially like one of the earlier ones called the um, Ashtasahashrika Prashna Paramita Sutra, the Paramita Sutra in 8,000 lines. That's a nice one to, they, they get a little more detailed into Paramitas and Bodhisattva practice. And in some ways, some of them are a little less, maybe the Heart Sutra isn't, but some are a little less like um, piercing in terms of uh, giving up anything and everything. So that's, that's my read, but consult a scholar on that one. Mm-hmm. Brian. Yeah. Um, the passage that you read that we're going to be um, chanting later as well talks about being the Bodhisattva giving a gift unsupported by the notion of a sign because there's this vast heap of merit when it's done that way. <laughs> so later on, Bodhidharma was asked by the emperor, well, what kind of merit do I get for all this stuff I've done? And he says, no merit whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Could you say something about those two together? Yeah. That's that's a commentary on the sutra. It's an understanding. So the merit is understood as no merit, you could say. But it's vast. But it's vast and inconceivable. So it's nothing. So Bodhidharma is saying there's nothing you can hold on to. So that's the emperor is asking, you know, what's the merit of all this good I'm doing? You know, I'm donating lots of money to your cause. <laughs> like, that's what we're going to tell our donors, right? No merit. <laughs> just vast emptiness. <laughs> we might just say thank you very much and build a temple. But yeah, you know, that's that's standard issue. You know, standard issue in my opinion. You look puzzled still? Yeah. Mhm. Um, <laughs> Good. Sure. Good. The diamond's working. Um, what what is it? What is a vast heap of merit that is no merit? Your question. That that is my question. Yeah. <laughs> that is the vast heap of merit that is oh, no my merit. My question is the This cardinal letting go, so that you can. Realize giver, receiver, and gift are one. But keep trying to get a hold of it because this sutra does this to us. We want to get a hold of the, the answer and the merit and understand, you know, and look at like we're sending like amazing telescopes out into space because we want to know. And it's really great. Like, you know, amazing things. We've developed amazing technology. AI can now predict protein structures, like with huge um, accuracy that would have taken a year, years to identify. So, um, so keep, you know, this knowing isn't bad. 
just see it as a vast heap of merit that has no merit. And then you enjoy it. Then you come back and enjoy it fully. Mm, I think, I think that Jan was up first. Can everyone hear us? Okay. And hear the questions. Okay, great. And responses, of course, Jan Bodhisattva. The thing that, um, thing that I like the best about what there's Jan, Jan there's is, Jan. Mm-hmm. Oh, oh, <laughs> is um, her lighter. Anyway, that impressed me was a tree is a tree, and everything that is not a tree. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now. That's a difficult concept because, for example, the cardinal. The cardinal is not the tree, although the tree is everything that is not a tree. This, you know, this is the stuff that sends me into fits of laughter. Great. So, you know, just <laughs> that's it, right? <laughs> the gift that delivers <laughs> laughter is emptiness. But yes, so so this is why that this is how the diamond cutter works. It softens. That doesn't mean that you won't be like someone like you know Gyoshin who studies the natural world and birds and loves them, loves them so much that she wants to be very intimate with them. But my guess is the more intimate she gets with this world, the freer it is of the concept. So a cardinal is a cardinal when it's, and it's free, you know, so that I I read this essay by Barry Lopez, which I've been quoting a lot lately, but in this essay, in his most recent selection, he talks about his view on diversity. And he said, you know, I learned about diversity from these uh, indigenous people who would see an elk or a moose or whatever caribou And they would not see it as a member of a category of caribou, but as this particular being in this particular context. And therefore, it was free to be unpredictable. So they didn't assume it was going to be that same caribou in the next instant. So this is the cardinal. It might sing. It might come in here and peck my eyes out. I don't know. You know, but hopefully we'll all be friends. So, yeah, I'm glad you're confounded. I'm glad you can laugh. You know, because there's joy and also seriousness as well in these teachings. Um, there was Eve. We'll need to hear your voice projected to Eve. Right, yeah. Thank you. Can, you mm-hmm. Can people hear Eve? Let's see if I turn you. How about that? Can you hear me? Yes. Well, when you were saying that knowledge isn't bad, um, I think it can be when it's combined with separateness. And um, I've been thinking about my anthropological lineage because I'm working on a presentation with a friend and a colleague. And my anthropological lineage and my Zen lineage coincide in the person of Gregory Bateson. Uh-huh. He died yeah. in the San Francisco Zen Center right. on purpose, <laughs> intentionally. Um, Tigan said that you know he was there actually at the vigil. Um, and Bateson famously said that if you think that you're an organism, 
that's separate from its environment and you have an advanced technology, that your chance of survival is that of a snowball in hell. <laughs> and um, so <laughs> sorry, the advanced technological knowledge and, and the ideas of separateness combined are a problem. And what I've been working on, Bateson talked about epistemological premise. And so you might want to speak a little louder, sorry, Eve, or come closer. Yeah. So I said Bateson talked about epistemological premises. Uh -huh. So an example is that idea that an organism is separate from its environment. And my teacher, who was a student of Ginsburg, Carol, um, talked about that as cultural premises. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, you know, we also have to let go of the idea of cultures. It gets to your ideas about diversity. That, you know, it's not that cultures are separate entities, right? But there are these premises that, that that's the whole question about whether we should be called the premises, but there are mm -hmm. these kinds of ideas that are shared. I, I was struck with when you said that the Diamond Sutra went viral on the Silk Road, because, you know, there is this connection between these, these ideas, and they're not head ideas, right? They're basic predispositions mm -hmm. that we impose on the world. But um, or that have to do with our relationship to the world. But anyway, um, so and they do circulate in in human groups um, and perhaps other organisms as well. But but one of the things that I've been concerned with in a long time is for a long time is that 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 cultural premises do change. That we went somehow from the medieval world into the modern one. Although there's a lot of ways in which we're still pre-modern. Mm -hmm. But I mean, to me, the important thing about, about Buddhism in general and the Diamond Sutra at this moment is to me it's an antidote. Right. It's an antidote to, to the the problems that that have been engendered by by premises about separateness. Mm-hmm. Right. So that antidote, I hope everyone heard um some of that, at least. There's a lot there, Eve. Um, but the, all the conventions we have are going to continue until we don't survive anymore and they don't work. You know, conventions usually develop because they work on some level. It's just that, you know, in some ways we have a hard time with scale, you know, because we think our present moment is so important when in some ways it is. But if you look at the arc of history, we're just like a droplet, you know. So all the problems we have are probably problems the world has always had when somebody discovered fire or tools or other things, you know. Um, but yes, this is a, an antidote. Or I would say, yeah, you know, it's a healing medicine. Or I wouldn't say... Because I don't want to even think of conventions as poisons, you know. They're just part of the whole, the whole thing. So they're not separate either. But still, in our practice, we we take our positions in the world to care for it, to find out about the cardinals or uh, nuclear weapons or uh, cultural assumptions, so that. We don't hold on to them, but we work with them and we get feedback from the world. When the world doesn't like it, uh, it tells us. Yes. <laughs>
Anyone else in the Zoomiverse like to add something to this discussion? Good. I think we're all okay for now to go on to our next set of events. Does that make sense? So, um, do we do announcements and then four vows or four vows and then four vows? Okay. So I'm going to mute myself. Techno, is that okay? I think we might know them. Okay. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it. Beings are numberless. I vow to free them. Delusions are inexhaustible. I vow to end them. Dharma gates are boundless. I vow to enter them. Buddha's way is unsurpassable. I vow to realize it.